Uh, hopefully, hopefully we've got it figured out. Hopefully we've got it figured out. Okay. Let's do this. Um, how we prepare ourselves. There is something that must be done before we go out and fight and maintained as we continue to fight. Uh, and so oftentimes, let me give you an, an illustration. I remember having lunch with a dear friend a few years back. Um, it was in Matthews. It was during a lunch break I had in between teaching classes. And we were talking about schools. And one of the points that he makes, made, which is very popular among many Christian parents, which I think is actually more of an excuse um, to not either financially or with time and effort engage in educating your own children, is he made the point that one of the reasons why he thinks that it could be wise for Christian parents to send their uh, children to the state for education is so that they can be missionaries. Uh, I, I, first of all, find that logic reprehensible for this reason. When you look at African, you know, sort of tyrants, they incorporate children into their armies. And have you seen pictures of like 10-year-olds with AK-47s? This is what Christians are basically saying. Um, we're going to send our children out to fight a battle that we lost. And we're going to use them like so many pawns and throw them against the rising tide of secularism in this culture so that our kids will do a job that we failed to do. It's cowardly. It's not patriarchal. It's not faithful. It's cowardly. So my point in all that is we cannot go out and expect to be immature, to not be grounded in the word, to not have biblical convictions, and to be effective or faithful. And so the first step in being a faithful apologist is to nurture ourselves, our hearts, on truth, goodness, and beauty. And the way that we do that is by encountering God in those places where he has promised to feed us and to strengthen us. And the primary place where that happens is in the corporate worship of the people of God. It happens in family worship. It happens in private worship. But I will say this. If you're at home and you have limited time in the morning, if the question is, am I going to do my quiet time or am I going to lead my family in family worship? You should lead your family in family worship and read your Bible later. And the reason is, not only is it important for you to nurture your soul, but it is essential that we corporately approach the throne of God together. And so if, you, if this principle, you become what you behold, holds true, which it does, right? The psalmist uses this in the negative example where those who worship the idols of earth will become like them. It follows that those who worship God will become like him. And what you develop in worship is not just intelligence and scriptural understanding. What you grow in corporate worship is a spine, is a backbone. Because you are, you are around other people who believe the same things, maybe not completely, but you know that if the time comes and it's a question of, am I for Christ or for the world? And you look back at all of the friends that are there, if you were to leave them to go the way of the world, it actually makes it much harder to leave your friends. Now, sometimes you have to leave your friends, right? Let good and kindred go, this mortal life also, this body they may kill. Um, there are times where there may be friends you have to say, yeah, this isn't working. But the saints of God... 
the corporate worship of the saints, delighting in the truth together, corporate apologetics is that primary means by which the lost are actually brought into the church as they see the church exercising faithfulness together. So um, the text that I want us to look at are 1 Peter chapter 3 and Philippians chapter 4. If we are to be faithful witnesses, we must imbibe, we must be imbued with the powerful working, the beautifying working of God's word. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter is writing to a church that is suffering, that is fighting. The early church was a church at war, in essence, for their survival. They were despised not only by the Jews, but by many of the people in their day. The pagans are secularists in Rome, the statists in Rome. And so as they're suffering, this is what Peter writes. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called to this, that, he, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him speak peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, in those first few verses, Peter is stating how to build a culture. You are to build a society of compassion, of courtesy, of not returning evil for evil, to not speak evil, to not be deceitful. This is the kind of world, Christians, you are laboring to build. And then he presents the world as it is. Now what he's not saying is this is an imaginary world. This is the world the church is seeking to build. We are building one kind of place But we are building one kind of place over and against the kind of world that the devil wants to build. So, and he, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? And you go, well, I can think of a lot of people. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. With meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. The way in which we manifest in the eyes of the world, in the face of adversity and difficulty, is to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. Our hearts. Peter is writing to the church. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it as individuals, but as a congregation, one of the things that we must do is, as a corporate body, sanctify God. We are saying, as a people, this is who we are. Here we stand. We can do nothing else. This is what we are going to do. And then, in light of our sanctifying God or the Lord in our hearts, we are then made ready to give a defense to those who ask us for the reason of the hope that is in you. Now, not everyone is going to ask you that. And in fact, most people won't. Most people will hate the joy in your heart. They will want to snuff out that light. Do you know why? Because they don't have it. And there is that sort of principle among the wicked, if I can't have it, nobody can have it. And you will meet people like that. But then there will be those 
as we sang, that when we are in trial, that's when the church has its moment. The church has its moment when we experience trials, and despite those trials, we are still trying to establish the kind of culture, the kind of society, the kind of people and corporate environment that we see in verses 8 through 12 of gentleness and good and righteousness. And sometimes we're going to have to do that from prison. But in order for that to happen, you and I must sanctify the Lord in your heart first. Now, what does that mean? God is here and everything else is down here. The way my dad used to say it was, if your life is a wheel, Christ is not the spoke, he's the hub. And all these little things in your life as you're moving along can fall. You can break a spoke, but if the hub breaks, the whole wheel is useless. And so if the approval of men is the hub, if the making of a dollar is the hub, whatever that may be, if it's something other than the lordship of Jesus Christ and the honor of the triune Lord, then you're doing it wrong. The wheel will not continue to roll. And so in some ways, despite the fact that we are trying to build a system where we love our neighbor and the glory and honor of Christ is manifested in our midst, that's the ideal in some way. Even if that's not happening, like in early Rome or in the ancient age, or the, our, our empire is not ancient, but boy, it seems to be on the way down. How are we to live in this fading, glorious empire? Well, we sanctify the Lord in our hearts. We sanctify God. That is the exercise of lifting up the name of God above every other name. Do all these other things that are right and good that God has given us, but they never take the place of the sanctifying Lord as God. Now, let's look at Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, if you read this passage like a dispensationalist, when you read the Lord is at hand, you think, I just need to be really good for this short amount of time before Jesus comes. That doesn't work. First of all, the time is long. And the reason why the time is long is despite the fact that you look back and your life was short, you experience this? Wow. I mean, it goes by so quickly. It's almost Christmas. And I felt like we just put up the boxes that held the gifts that nobody ever did anything with from last Christmas that came out of our stockings. You know what I mean? All the little knickknacks that no one ever does anything with. Maybe you don't. Why do we buy all this stuff? Just to be put away for a year and then never be played with again. It still feels long. And what really feels long is sorrow and difficulty. It seems to stretch time. This whole idea that time is relative is an actually interesting principle. And so what Paul is saying in Philippians is not the Lord is about to come. What he is saying is that in our worship, God is near. He's here. And that when we exercise good piety, gentleness before all men... God is present in our ministry. He's here. And because God is present, is at hand, 
our worship among the nations will have the effect that the fame and the name and the glory and the power and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, that gives us strength and guards our hearts, will also infect the nations. And when I say nations, I do mean every tribe, tongue, and nation. Worship is contagious. And the reason why worship is contagious is because the Holy Spirit has been sent out into the world by God to infect. So the difference between the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and the New Testament is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Whereas leaven in the Old Testament was considered bad, don't, don't mess with that leaven that is sin, Leaven in the New Testament becomes, well, we become the leaven. Don't be infected by the world, Old Testament. Holy Spirit is poured out. Now you go infect the world. You go out there and you take the world for Christ. Anything less than that is unfaithfulness. And this is where many churches ultimately die. And they die on the vine because they either don't worship well or they have given up this glorious mandate, this commission to live as though the Lord is right here at hand in our midst. And if God is at hand, I mean, I think about a child and their parents, especially their mothers. Um, even my teenage children, when they come at home, come home sometimes, they'll, knock, they'll open the door, nobody's in the foyer, and they go, Mom! Like, stop yelling in the house. She's somewhere in the house. Don't worry. But they always say, Mom, because they know if they call me, I won't answer. I'm like, you can come find me if you need me. Mom! It's great. You know what it is? What are they seeking? The normal, the peace. Maybe food. I don't know. Whatever it might be. They want to know their place. And they want to know that everything is right. And worship trains the saints, and it says to the world, we believe all that God has said is true, and it is coming true. And so all apologetics begins and ends with this conviction that God is at hand. And so it begins, look at, there's no page numbers. I don't know what happened to them. It's like they got cut off. So I guess it's page two. Flip your page over, and it says outline. These are actually my notes from my talk. I hope they're understandable because I don't edit my outlines. In fact, I hope there's nothing in there that you don't need to read. But like sometimes it's little mental notes that don't make any sense to anyone. And you may think, this guy's a lunatic, but you may already think that. It begins with a gift. As an apologist, you are given something by God. We are blessed with salvation by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit this is to say we are made alive in Christ. We are given then this treasure, a light, a testimony. So I had to have things like scriptures without references. So here on that page, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. 
always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be manifested in our body. So you as a person, as a body, and we as a body can go out into the world, and because we have Christ in us, because there is a treasure within us, we are not seeking the treasure of this world. The reason why the world outside of us is insane in their search The reason why there are so many today that are on psychosomatic drugs and are seeking satisfaction in other things, the satisfying of the flesh, and they are crazed in doing it, and they're willing to make all kinds of excuses and compromises to feel loved and unique is because they have untethered themselves from the word of God that brings light and life. Just now in New York, maybe you saw this, a law has been passed where the rights for polyamorous couples are now the same as couples. Now there are an enormous, this, that is an enormous, not only is it a great immorality, but there are enormous legal ramifications for this. So how are we then to think of matters such as that? Well, before we can graduate to sort of philosophically picking apart thruples, not only as a moral exercise, but as a legal and judicial reality, the first thing that we must do is we must ask ourselves, is there a scriptural, biblical way that is light and life? And do we know it? We must be grounded upon God's word. And not just in knowing it. But with our whole heart saying, if God said it, this is the way it must be. Because we not only know something of the word, but we know something of God. That God is good and all that he says is right. And he actually wants us to be healthy and happy and whole. And when I say healthy and happy and whole, I don't mean temporarily, immediately. But in light of eternity, you will be happier in heaven than you will be in hell. Let me put it that way. He wants you to be happy. But happiness and holiness go hand in hand. They must walk together. And so our testimony, our apology, which I was told I needed to define because I didn't define it last week, an apology or apologia just means to give an answer. It comes from that First Peter text. It is to defend. It is to rightly give a defense, to give an answer from Scripture as to what is true, good, and beautiful. And so it begins with a child, Lord willing, expressing at some point in his life, young or old, Christ has come into my heart and he's made me new. And it needs to be explicit and understandable. Christian parents, your main responsibility when it comes to your children is to convey the glorious gift of God's righteousness and how your children need to say, that's mine. And it was theirs ever before they took hold of it. Isn't that amazing? And when they do, in their minds, in their hearts, lay claim to it, what you have is this raw material whereby you can make them dangerous for the kingdom and against the kingdom of darkness. There is nothing like a child who speaks the truth in their sort of unnuanced innocence. You know what I mean? I love that. Taking it to the elites, taking it to the college professors. My children who confess Christ have greater wisdom than any that 
Harvard and Oxford, these experts. In fact, this is often the argument you will find. Uh, recently, there was a book that came out on the topic of Christian nationalism. Uh, and there was a woman who was on Twitter, and her first question to this gentleman, well, so what are your credentials? And everybody goes, what does that matter? I mean, what does it really matter? I know a lot of people who are credentialed who I would never go to for spiritual counsel or guidance. Most of them are in, you know, the sort of psychological departments in these great universities. And what they've done is they've jettisoned this idea that God is ma- man is made in God's image and rather God is, a man is a machine, a biological machine that is chemical and all you're trying to do is prescribe something in order to get those chemicals rightly balanced. But what about the soul? What about the soul? So it begins with a gift and then it builds and grows through worship. If every saint is called to be an apologist, and what I'm contending is that you are, pastors are apologists, officers in the church are apologists, and it's not just those who are ordained, it is those who have been given the Spirit. You cannot help, right? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. That should be your disposition. I'm just going to wear my label right here. Christ, not Nero, right? Not member of the state, but what? Eternally bought. Whatever. Don't get that, you know, in some strange language on a tattoo. Don't do that. (laughs) Live that. And so worship is the means by which the Spirit works on our hearts and fans into a flame that gift that has been given that needs to grow. Think of it like a sword. And when you're a kid, if you're being trained, you don't fight with a lethal weapon. You train with a stick a staff, something that may hurt but isn't lethal. Parents, we need to be training our children not just in the knowledge of the Lord but the affections of the Lord. What you're looking for is when you say, hey, let's go to church, that they don't go, oh. Because you know who they learned that from? The culture and you. Right? Gotta go to church. It's like going to the doctor. I've got to get my teeth pulled. Now, don't fake it, parents. Oh, let's go. And you act like a lunatic, like kind of like the Joker, right? Always smiling. It should be a sincere delight. Um, now, I pulled one of these quotes, which I think is great. I pulled it off of this account. I don't know what that at means exactly, but I felt like I should properly represent him. The thing is this. They cannot stop people who are truly having fun. I love that. When I speak of ornery Christians, what I mean by an ornery Christian is someone who is taking delight in tearing down the strongholds of the world that they call precious, and you have a good time tearing them down. I don't mean maniacal. I don't mean cruel. But when King Josiah, a young boy, discovered the law, It had been hidden, not hidden, it had been lost. And he read the book of the law, the first five books of the Bible. You know what he did? He said, "Uh uh-oh, we got some serious reforming to do. We need to tear down all the high places in the land of Israel. Now, he didn't finish, but he started it. And so all the Asherah pole, all of these monuments to the glory of men and false gods, he endeavored to tear down. That's what the law of God wants to do. The question for us is, where are those high places in our culture? And I think those things are readily identifiable. Look where the blasphemy laws are. 
Look at the places that people guard and they put men on. And some of those places, now I'm not saying, um, you know, this sort of Reformation OPC militia, we're going to live by the truth. You know, I'm not saying any of that stuff at this point. Maybe later. What I am saying is the abortion mill in Charlotte is an Asherah pole. It is a temple devoted to the worship of Moloch. And when I say Moloch, I mean the pagan god whose blood can never be assuaged by, a fa- by an unlimited amount of unborn children. And what is Moloch? Right now he is the god of convenience. It's the god I can do whatever I want to. And so, and I mean, listen, I've gotten in trouble for saying that in, in a Christian classroom, Right? equating abortion with Moloch worship. So and even when you begin to say these things, even among other Christians, they're going to go, wait a second. If you start talking like that, they're going to come for us. And I'm saying, no, 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 we're coming for them. Right? That's what we're doing. Now, they may come back at us, but this world has not been promised to them. The world has been promised to us. And when I say world, what I mean is when we look at the scriptures and there are two men standing in the field and one of them goes and the other stays, that's not rapture. In fact, that's the inversion of that application of that principle. The unbeliever is the one who is scattered and like chaff to the wind. It is the believer that inherits and stands at the last day. And so what we must do in worship is together exemplify what it means to be a standing, confident, devoted people. And not only that, but also, if you'll turn to the next page, our witness, our testimony, our efforts of apologetics reveals itself in and with holiness. You've heard the phrase, never trust a skinny chef. Have you all heard this? Why? Because you have to know if he's sampled his wares. It's a little bit of a caricature, but, right? Now, there's something that is wrong with the expert, the appeal to um, authority, which is sort of a logical fallacy. But also at the same time, if I'm going in for open heart surgery, I do want to know something of the credentials of this man, right? I want to know that he didn't go to vet school, but he went to a human medical school. Although there's actually a lot of correlation there that, frankly, I'd rather go to a vet for most stuff cheaper. And you can get ivermectin there. (laughs) Sorry. Now it's getting canceled. Ivermectin is the code word. Um, It reveals itself in holiness. What I mean is, as you are going out, as an apologist, it is very difficult to compromise with your friends while at the same time challenging them on the very issues you've compromised in their sight with. Uh, Well, let me give you an example. Um, as it relates to how we deal corporately with particular governmental edicts or mandates. You have to be careful because compromising on one issue may lead to further compromise in the future. And there are a lot of people who, you know, in the recent past left churches where they had leaders that did not know exactly how to proceed as it related to these government mandates. And they said, well, we just need to do what we're told. We need to do what we're told. And then all of a sudden, they're also saying out of the other side of their mouth, stand up for Jesus. And I'm saying, about what? When should we stand and when should we not stand? That our reputations, I'm not making a judgment. Actually, I am, but I'm trying to be subtle. Um, 
how we act, the way we dress, our conduct either encourages or discourages the truth claims that come from our mouths. This is why Paul says in the epistles, pastors kind of need to have their personal lives and their family lives together. That's just part of it. And the reason is this. Don't take advice from someone that is terrible at the thing they're giving you advice about. The way I say it to my children is, don't missionary date. You've compromised yourself already. Because what you're saying is, if you believe in Jesus, you can have me. And so what all they're hearing is, you can have me. If I jump through these particular hoops. Because the objective is not about God and his glory. It's about what? Pleasure. The prize at the end of the road is not a person. It's not a, you get to have a relationship with me because I'm so great. It is arguing for the lordship of Christ over all things. And the way in which we will do this best is not only with our mouths speaking what is true, but with our lives living faithfully to the Lord. And it does mean saying no to some things. But there is nothing like the fellowship of the saints. I mean, really, when brothers dwell in unity, it is like the oil that pours out upon Aaron's head and his beard and his clothes. It is the very blessing of Almighty God. What I'm saying is as a church, we need to show the world how it's done with relationship to, in relationship to full, happy, content lives. Because that's what they want. They want to be content. But their hearts are empty because they've been scratching and digging and built, um, going after these cisterns that cannot hold water. So, let's move to the second main point. Are y'all good? Do you have any questions? Yes. We can always continue this. A precedent set, sorry. When you when you take the this option. Yeah. He did. We'll try to remember together. Yeah. Yeah. And it's what it is is what the world thinks that the Christian life is a call to rejecting pleasure. When the Christian life is the embracing of affections rightly ordered, and because they're rightly ordered, they're actually enjoyable. Uh, Francis Schaeffer wrote a great book on this called The Christian Manifesto. And in The Christian Manifesto, Schaeffer says, Christians should be patrons of the arts, of music, of all of these things, because ultimately everything that is enjoyed in light of the lordship of God, is truly enjoyed, and it does not become twisted as a god or an idol. 
And so what we're doing in our worship is building a culture. That's my main point, that culture is downhill from worship. And downhill from culture, as you've heard said, is what? Have you heard this? Politics. Corporate morality is the product of culture. Or culture is basically corporate morality. And what happens is you vote for the people you, that represent your, your virtues. What is our virtue right now on display? I mean, I don't even... It's almost like a virtueless society. Right, we, we're led, uh, the, the, the man who sits at the highest seat, although I know that's a terrible way of saying it, the president of the United States is essentially a blank slate into whom all virtues, the virtues of the day are poured. He is actually a caricature of the whole country. There is no direction whatsoever. He's just, I mean, you've seen him, and I'm not making fun of him. He's legitimately just like waiting for programming. And what we are doing is oftentimes as a church, we are not being programmed by the word. We are looking to the world and saying, you know, give me my order, that kind of thing. We need to be programmed by the scriptures. And what it will result in is not robotics. It results in a healthy, organic, spiritually vibrant, beautiful, colorful life. It's spring at the end of winter. And so ultimately that's what sets us apart. Now, any more questions? We'll get to this part next week because huh, we've run out of time. Um, because I, I think these things really get down to the nitty-gritty about how we are to think of ourselves in relationship to the world. We've got about two minutes. Wait, did we say we go till 10 till or 5 till? We have seven minutes. Whew. All right, any questions, anything? Henry's helping me keep time up here. Well, we think very pharmacologically about all this stuff, like let's fix the problem. We call this an over eschaton, which means this. We really think heaven will come to earth prior to Christ's coming in a way, almost in the sense that Christ won't need to come. There will always be a fight, always be a struggle. There will always be, as it were, a problem to fix. And the way in which God deals with this in the book of Deuteronomy is... Here's how you care for the poor, but you're always going to have the poor with you. The poor are not a problem to fix. They are fellow people made in the image of God that you are to care for. You will never fix the world's problems, especially by sending the right guy. You will always be disappointed. Some group will be disappointed, right? What we can only ever do is strive to be faithful 
And the only way that I can think to do that, because we don't have the emotional capital to look much further, is right here, this side of the church. Now, you know what I mean. This little group, which is actually the beauty of a relatively small covenant community is, at the end of the day, you and I only have enough emotional capital to really care about a handful of people. And everything else that happens in the world, we don't have a lot of room for Right? I don't put a Ukrainian flag on my Twitter handle because I don't have the time to mourn the death of every Ukrainian or Russian or whoever may be in the world that's out there dying. And if I do that, guess who I don't give my strength to? You people. And so a lot of it is, I think we talked about this as a men's fellowship group, don't give your strength, don't give your emotional capital to situations to people, to a place that you will never actually have any effect in, like Washington. Now, you can maybe do an end around, right, an inadvertent type of thing. But right now, when I go home, my job is to not yell at my kids, (laughs) to love them, to show them the joy and the beauty of a life lived in honor to the Lord. This is the thing about children is, and I've This is actually one of my points in my apologetics class. I'm talking to teenagers and I'm saying get married and have lots of babies. Because you can invest, you can invest in the stock market, but all of that currency, it's it's fake. It's all fake. But what children are, are truly a, a, a possession that does not dwindle, but it multiplies. And the way in which that investment, you get the return on your investment is... You pour into the young the convictions that will carry them throughout their whole life. And here's the thing. The world's not having babies, right? They've got dogs, and they call them children. Like, all right, crazy person. So I've had my, I've had my run at that. <laughs> We need people to, right, you know, and now I have, I have, there's a granddaughter coming. I'm like, what has happened? I'm not even old enough. I can't even come up with a cool granddad name. But, you know, that's kind of the way it should be, right? Age gracefully by getting aged out. So we'll, we'll pick up next week where we're leaving off here. What our commitments to in terms of Scripture and what that will make us look like in the eyes of the world. And we'll go a little bit farther than what's on this outline. But um, any other questions? Guys, if this is helpful or unhelpful, give me some feedback. Sometimes I feel like it's just the musings of a madman. But I want you to be on the same page because I want us as a congregation, if I can just get one point through to you, and that is we have it so much better than what the world is trying to tell us is better. And it may be simple. It may be old-fashioned. They will make fun of you. But to be in union with Christ and to be part of the household of faith, there is nothing like it. Don't be ashamed of it. Get out there and brag about it, you know, in a, in a good way. And, and bring people in. All right, let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would, by your grace and by your spirit who makes things appealing to us where they were once not appealing, because we are in need of being not only transformed from darkness to light, but we are in need of being sanctified. 
that you would not only do that act of justification, but that glorious work of sanctifying our hearts wherein we sanctify you, set you apart among all the other gods of this world. Help us to worship and to be seen worshiping and to be bold. And then to say to people, this is why we worship God and not your fake gods. Lord, help us to be a people who are prepared, not just the words to say, but hearts that are full of conviction. We pray this in your name. Amen. Y'all have a wonderful Sunday.